Welcome. This is Felipe Jimenez, Assistant Professor of Law and Philosophy at the University of Southern California, and this is the Private Law Podcast. My guest today is Professor Brian Biggs, Professor of Law and Philosophy at the University of Minnesota. Professor Biggs is an expert in jurisprudence, family law, and contract law. He's a member of the American Law Institute and has written multiple books and articles on jurisprudence, contract theory, and related topics. Hi, Brian. How are you? Hi, I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me on. No, thanks for accepting my invitation. It's really a great pleasure. As you know, I'm uh, really interested in uh, some of the same topics you're interested in, so I'm I'm really excited about having this, um, this uh, conversation with you. Um, so you've written a lot about contract theory, uh, and I, I thought it would be a good idea to start talking a bit about what you call the gap between ideal and reality in contract theory and contract doctrine. So can you tell us a bit about uh, what you mean by that gap and why do you think it matters? Um. So I, I, I uh, written a bit about Stuart Macaulay, and and one thing Stuart Macaulay uh, uh, is famous for is is all of his work where he says, um, you know, what we learn in in contract law courses, what we write about in our contract theory articles, ha- bears very little relationship to how contracts are experienced by those. Uh, who are involved in them, especially large businesses. Um, and there was, there, there, there was a quote um, that, that, that um, Macaulay likes from um, Lawrence Friedman, where Lawrence Friedman says, um, the common law approach to law in the schools and in the legal literature at its worst can be compared to a zoology course, which confined its study to dodos and unicorns. And, you know, the idea is half of what we do is is nonsense and as you know, contrary to reality, and the other half is irrelevant. Um, my and the related concern I have, and I talk about this in one of my pieces on Macaulay, is um, is that the picture of contract practice that we give to our students, not only is it you know not how it's experienced, but it also is just. It's it's much more positive, or at least has a certain valence to it. Um, uh, you know that that um, you know the good guys often win. That unfair terms are not enforced. Um, that there's equality uh, in bargaining and in outcomes. Um, it's and and. I, I learned a lot from, from cultural studies, especially the work of Paul Kahn, K-A-H-N. And um, what, what, what Kahn said is that in cultural studies, um, you know, coming out of, you know, like the, like the early hermeneutic work on, on, on biblical scholarship, is that the scholarship goes in a different direction. Once you, once you don't assume that what you're studying is true, the claims of, of the area are true, but rather you, you, you assume it's false. And, and then ask, you know, why, why are they putting forward this fiction? You know, if you, you, if you stop thinking that the, the Bible is the divine word of God and then say, assume it's not, and then say, well, wh- you know, why do, we, why do you want to tell a story about, that our people came out of Egypt? Or why do you want to tell a story that there was someone who was the son of God who died for our sins, right? Why do we want to tell this story? Why are we telling this 
why are we portraying contract law in this way to our students or indeed to the general public? And what effects does it have? And not necessarily that there's some conscious Masonic conspiracy or something, but that there's sort of an unconscious. I mean, there's something along the lines of Duncan Kennedy talking about hierarchy, that this is a process where certain messages are, are, are brought across and reinforced and anyone who, who, you know, denies those messages, you know, is, you know, not, not, not put in prison, but, but certainly, you know, is, is sort of marginalized. That that's, that's very clear. Um, so it seems to me that there are two things, at least two things going on here. So one thing is, I think we tend to teach contracts in a way that is uh, skewed towards um, bargained transactions between what economists call sophisticated parties. So I think that's one part of what you're getting at. The other part is, even when we don't talk about that, when we talk about consumer transactions, when we talk about contracts of addition, we teach a version of that or the canon of contract law and contract theory teaches a version of that that suppresses or um, presents some of the ugliest aspects of our contractual practices in a way that is actually not consistent with reality. So, you, uh, you know, we talk about unconscionability. We talk about standards of consumer protection. We talk about reasonableness. And then when you look at practice, uh, we actually learn that the extent to which we refrain from enforcing these uh, odious transactions is quite limited, that in fact, through arbitration, typically what will happen is that there won't be any judicial oversight over these transactions. And so do you think you could talk a bit more about those two different things and what, what worries you about those two different things? Because it seems to me there are two different phenomena, right? So, so one is, I think we teach a lot of contracts having in mind, you could say the 19th century model, but also in a way, the 21st century model for large businesses and consumers of large corporate law firms. And there might be, I think, a, a reasonable explanation for that, which is, Maybe many of our students, for reasons that we might think are problematic, but but that, that seems to be the case, many of our students are interested in what they perceive will be the most lucrative or the most exciting or the most rewarding forms of work, which are found in these large corporate law firms, which advise rich clients. And so there might be an explanation for that that is probably not present in the second case. In the second case, it seems to me it's much more like we're telling these false stories that are playing some function that we're not fully aware of. So, yeah, I, I agree with everything you just said. Let me, I just want to uh, read something I wrote in, in one of the Macaulay pieces, which is um, students leave these textbooks and our courses believing that most agreements are worked through through back and forth negotiations, that contracts of adhesions are often not enforced as written, that unconscionability, promissory estoppel, and unjust enrichment are claims that commonly prevail that breaches of contracts generally lead to compensatory damages that approximate the damages caused, and that good faith will usually constrain expressly granted discretion or impose duties of disclosure. Generally and most damagingly, students learn that the good guys frequently win. It is perhaps only the constraint of trying to teach all of contract law in three credits that prevents us from going on to mention the tooth fairy and unicorns. Um, 
And you say, well, our students, certainly at your school and my school, most of our students are going to go out and, and work for rich people and rich corporations. Um, but I don't think we prepare them well for that either. I mean, if you, I need hardly tell you about the rich literature out there with Robert Scott, Alan Schwartz, Charles Goetz, and others, um, Michu Galati, uh, about how um, you know how much of this is negotiated, how much uh, of the contracts can help to um, encourage creativity, uh, agency cost problems, agency principal problems. Um, uh, I think if we wanted to teach contract law for future corporate lawyers uh, at, at, with attention to what they will actually be doing, we'd still teach the course radically different from the way we do. Um, and, you know, there's there's interesting literature. Again, I need hardly tell you interesting literature now about how much of it is how much of it is still the case, uh, as Macaulay and Alex, uh, Alexson and others said, that the, that the contracts are put in the drawer and, and, the, and people just work it out. And how much of it is like some more recent relational contract works by people like Lisa Bernstein saying, no, actually, we, there, there's now very intricate contracts, which then are connected into um Mutual governance, where 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 com companies help to you know are, are actually involved in, in the day to day em em employment issues and hiring issues of one another's company with connection to scoreboards and and uh, 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 ways of of connecting to your contractual obligations. But again, none of you know whether you believe in Macaulay or believe in Bernstein's most recent work, none of it connects up much to what what's in the case books I see on my shelves. And what do you think is the explanation for this? Why do you think we persist in teaching contracts and contract doctrine in this way? So it seems that it's it's not uh, connected to the actual practice of, of corporate parties, that it also hides the fact that consumers and employees and uh, parties who uh, adhere to contracts of addition typically do not win. Um, so w why are we doing this? What is the explanation? And and you already said it's not a conspiracy, so that seems to be ruled out. Yeah. So what do you think is going on? What do you think is this is doing for us as a community of uh, scholars and academics? Okay, I you know I I don't have any obviously don't have any definitive answers. I have, I have a number of theories. I mean, one of them is if if you and I were to start tomorrow and give, you know you give up all your, your more interesting work and instead we're going to write a contract casebook. Um, you know, if we try to do what we've been talking about, let's do something that represents uh, uh, a contractual reality where the good guys almost never win. And most cases are shunted off to mandatory arbitration and uh, uh, promissory estoppel and unconscionability claims are uh, and good faith claims are all shot down. Um, that would be a really depressing book. Right. It would, it would be a hard book to write. It'd be a hard book to read. It'd be a hard book to teach. And, and part of it, I think, is just, just the reality that, you know, you know, we, you know, we like our movies and television, a certain percentage of our movies and television programs and, and podcasts or whatever to have happy endings, right? It's just hard to, to you know, it would, it would be, it would be both, it would be depressing and dire. Um, so that's part of it. Another part of it as is, you know, I, I, um, uh, lived a fair number of years in, in Britain. And, and, you know, if you ask people why they do things the way they do, the answer almost more often than not is because that's the way it's always been done. Um, you know, the, 
you know, the, 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 the American legal realists have changed our thinking somewhat uh, uh, about how we think about the law and how we teach the law, but not as much as you'd expect. Um, and, and so we go through the same sorts of cases of the same order, um, more or less as, as uh, uh, Christopher Columbus Langdell, Langdell's on contracts or, or Lon Fuller's early Fuller casebooks, although Fuller, of course, radically you know, tried the radical experiment of starting with remedies, but that sort of fell out of favor because even that's too much for most students to handle. Um, that's, that's part of it. That's just the way it's always been done. Another response I've heard, I think, has something to it is, look, we're not really trying to pre prepare people to uh, practice contracts in a contract law class. That the, the whole first year is about, you know, as, as they say in the old TV shows and movies, helping you think like a lawyer, right? We're going to give you certain cases and we're going to put you through your, your steps and, and give you hypotheticals and Socratic questions and whatnot. And, you know, what you know, we could we could we could cover admiralty law for, or 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 you know French corporation law for all that mattered. Um, but you know, we we pick these sorts of cases and we and we spend bunches of hours on consideration, even though most people won't see a consideration issue at least in a conventional sort in their in their life of practice. Um, so you know. None of this is a defense, but it may be an explanation. And I know you 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 write well of when when do we explain and when do we justify? I'm not here to justify. I'm here to explain. Great. Do you think this is just uh, uh, something that I just thought about? So it might be completely ungrounded. But do you think the fact that in the U.S. we don't have a national or a federal jurisdiction for contracts that we're not teaching the law? of one legal system, we actually have 50 legal systems or 51 legal systems at the same time, that that forces us uh, to teach an idealized uh, version of contract law in the sense that, you know, I don't teach, I teach in California, you teach in Minnesota, we don't teach the law of California and the law of, uh, and the law of Minnesota, we, I teach cases from Massachusetts, from New York, from California, um, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And we're, in a sense, forced by the reality that uh, we don't have a federal common law of contracts to teach this idealized version because our students, my students, will not all practice in California, and arguably part of legal education seems to be seems to involve these more abstract skills, as you said about legal reasoning, that are not necessarily connected to just one. Uh, system of contract law, but, uh, you know, in a sense, you would say, you know, part of what contract is supposed to teach you in the U.S. today is these landmark opinions like Hawkins v. McGee or uh, Wood v. Lucy. It doesn't matter that you don't, you're, that you're not in New York or you, you might not practice in New York. Uh, you should still read this Cardoso opinion, right? Because that's what is expected. It's how we've always done it, etc. There seems to be something that push, pushes us towards idealization in these um, uh, areas of law that are state law. Do you think there's something to it or do you think I'm completely uh, lost here? No, I think that there's definitely something to it. I think, I mean, there's a, a whole nother sociological investigation, right? Um we, You and I uh, teach general principles of contract law, not because... 
you know, you're in California and I'm in Minnesota and there's no national contract law. You, you and I teach general principles because we're both at schools that have high, that, that have and, and want to project a, a, a particular national status. Right. I know people who teach um, state contract law. I know lots of people teach state contract law. They're at, at, at so-called, you know, they're at schools so-called lower in the hierarchy um, where it's understood that in no particular state, Kentucky, Alabama, North Dakota, Minnesota, whatever, that, that you're going to that, that school and it's understood there's a high likelihood you're going to be practicing in that, that state and that the selling point of the school is that its students a, do pretty well on the state bar exam, and B, are ready to practice, you know, the day after graduation, right? For those people, they teach state contract law. Instead, we're high-status schools or project ourselves as high-status schools, so we teach general principles and then tell our students, and you better pay a lot of money for a bar preparation class because you're gonna, you know, they're going to teach you all the state contract law you should have learned from us, right? Number one. Number two, of course, there, there are... There is, to some extent, a national contract law on, on sale of goods. Of course, the Uniform Commercial Code, Article 2, is law in every state plus the District of Columbia other than Louisiana. And I tell my students Louisiana, for our purposes, doesn't exist, but you can still go there on vacation. Um, and and for non-outside of sale and for international transactions, of course, the CISG applies to, to every state. Um, uh, outside of sale of goods, we, you know, we have the restatement, right? And and you know, if you look at most books, they more or less teach the restatement, and then and then in between cases, they they have little notes or footnotes that say, and by the way, some states don't follow this; they do they do X instead. And my students get terribly upset because I said, well, you know, if there are three or four different approaches to the treatment of. Uh, of contracts with people under the age of majority, you get to argue in the alternative and give me all three. And that doesn't make them very happy. So, you know, they, they might have preferred I just taught them Minnesota law. Yeah, this reminds me of this kind of old, old paper that Melvin Eisenberg wrote uh, about the idea of national law, even in these areas that are, uh, in theory, state law, right? And so the restatement obviously plays an important role there. But uh, yeah, it's it's... It, what you said about the distinction between schools that want to project a national stature or uh, that they're at the top of the um, rankings at the national level, that there's a pressure there to teach these more idealized version of contracts, whereas law schools that are more focused on producing lawyers for the jurisdiction where they're in are actually teaching the positive law of the state, right? Um, there, there's, I, a, there's a law school. We, we, we both know what it is, but for libel purposes, we'll not name it. That's notorious for not teaching any law at all. You know, it's all sort of general principles and what you will do when you run the country. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I, I know what, what school you're referring to, and I'm pretty sure most of our uh, listeners will also recognize it. But now I want to move on to a, a, a different topic uh, and uh, a topic that is, in a sense, somewhat uh, dissociated from the actual reality of contractual practice. So I, I guess this is a good point to uh, start being uh, guilty of uh, all this is that you've listed in the past few minutes. So you have written a bit about whether we have a genuine duty to perform our contract. So what is your view on that question, that very old question in a way? 
I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure how. I mean, all questions are old questions. I'm sure you can find some citation to Plato or Aristotle or, or Confucius, but um, I don't think it's it's not a it, it's not a cliche sort of topic. I mean, when I I, I uh, wrote a piece for the uh, UNAM uh, journal Problema and then wrote a, a, a revised it. I was supposed to present it at a conference last summer, which got canceled in the pandemic. So I'm still working on it. Um, uh, there's not a lot out there that I know of. Uh, it, it's sort of, there's a large, as I say in the article, there's a large literature on the question of, do we have a general uh, or presumptive moral obligation to obey the law? You know, be, I did this because, you know, you should do it because the law says so sort of thing. Um, there's... What there is in contract law, in the contract literature, is sort of tangential, right? There is an interesting sort of literature about what, you know, assuming you should keep your contracts, what does that mean, right? Is it, you know, look, uh, there's this whole efficient breach literature, which means, you know, it traces itself back to, in some ways, to Holmes and certainly to Posner and and Getz and, and others, which says, you know, a, a contract is a promise to perform or pay damages, right? And if you're willing to pay, it's sort of a, a, a contract in the alternative. And if you're, you know, pay or play, if you're willing to pay damages, that's as much keeping the contract, again, assuming you pay, you know, the full amount you're it's due in a prompt way, which of course no one does, but let's bracket that. Assuming you're willing to pay the amount that's due uh, in a prompt way, you have as much kept your contract as if you had performed. And that, of course, is is you know while there's a, a you know a, a large supporting group for that, mostly out of law and economics, but not exclusively. Um, uh, it's very much counterintuitive. The counterintuitive notion is no, and and, and you know, and then even the there's even commentary in the UCC article too saying no, a, a, an agreement is an agreement to perform, and that people on the whole don't just want to be you know, do not think it's a matter of indifference whether the other party performs or pays damages. Um, so uh, what I do in the article is start from the literature about the obligation to obey the law and talk about the ways where the question of whether there's a moral obligation to keep a contract and bracketing for the moment what that would even mean, um, how that uh, inquiry would differ from the more established inquiry about whether you have a moral obligation to obey the law. And, you know, partly we have to work out what do, does it mean performing or paying damages. And but then it's there are things peculiar to contract law that make it a different question, um, that there are issues of consent uh, and contract law um, and, and that, you know, this goes back to our earlier topic. For most of us, most of the time, we don't fully consent to our contracts in the way uh, it's portrayed in the ideal situation. We talk about contract law to competent adults negotiating back and forth, uh, equal sophistication, equal bargaining power, coming to an agreement that's mutually advantageous, et cetera, et cetera, where, there are plenty, where there's alternatives to walk away and alternatives for alternative buyers and, and sellers are the vast, vast majority of contracts people enter into today uh, have no relation to that whatsoever. So there's, 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 what do we do about the consent issues? What do we do about background injustices? What do we do about the fact that the contract may be, let's say, an employment contract in which the employer is exploiting the employee? What do we do about the background injustice that it may be 
between someone who's rich and someone who's poor, someone who's from a privileged group and someone who's uh, from an exploited and oppressed group. Does that affect the question? Um, you know, there, there's a subset of critical race theory that, that says, you know, you have no obligation, you know, if you're from an oppressed group, you have no obligation to obey the law. You, you, you know, even some theorists would say you can have sort of self-help remedies to make up for your oppression by doing small acts of law breaking, at least if it's against a majority person, not another minority. Um, and, and indeed, that's, that's sort of, a, you know, that touches on an intuitive notion many people have, which is, you know, I'm an honest person, but, you know, insurance companies and the government don't count. You know, lying to, or, or, you know, or I'm an honest person, but, you know, dealing with rich corporation doesn't count. You know, there's a, a strange sort of moral geography. Um, and, and so I, I, in the articles, I start to explore, you know, how these various sorts of issues may interweave. Uh, I don't come to any any. Uh, you would be happy to know I haven't answered the question, so there's still room for you to answer it in your next article. Great. So I, I actually have uh, written about this uh, uh, for like five years. I've been working on a paper. I still haven't published it. So so it's interesting that I think the discussion on efficient breach uh, and, you know, what is the content of our duty, you could see it as a normative question, right? So it's, uh, you know, one reaction that people have to that is efficient breach is an immoral theory. But there's a kind of a prior question, which I think you, you touch upon, which is the kind of analytical or interpretive question, which is what is the content of the duty under our legal system, right? So I, I assume you're more interested in the second question, which is whatever content the duty has in the uh, you know, California law of contracts, whether it's a duty to perform or a duty to perform and, uh, or pay damages, as Holmes and some legal economists would say, Whatever that is, do you have a moral duty to perform that X thing, which we leave relatively underspecified? And then you say there are all these problems about consent. There are all these problems about um, about background injustice. So let me ask you one question about the, the issue of consent. So it's obvious to me, at least, that when you click I agree or you just sign on uh, you know, a, a, a long document that you haven't read, you haven't actually consented to all the terms. But wouldn't you say there's some plausibility to the idea that you have consented to the main terms, so typically the price and the quantity, maybe the timeline for the service or the receipt of the product that you're buying, and that you are, in a way, consenting to... Uh, whatever is reasonable within that black box, right? So, so I think most people. This is, in- this is this is of course, as as you know, is Randy Barnett's view. Yeah, Randy Barnett's view uh, is basically taken as Barnett notes uh, from Llewellyn, which is um, you know when you consent, you consent to the main and salient terms um, and the not unreasonable terms um, that you haven't read. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I have I have no objection to that analysis as far as it goes, um, but you know, can you know, can can consent, you know, in in the applied ethics sphere, consent is generally understood as a very complex, multi-factor, um, 
situ- multi-factor sort of, uh, of activity uh, or, or state of mind in which you can have consent to a greater or lesser extent. And then this is, you know, this is sort of, a, you know, a, a general issue in law, which is, you know, you've been talking with people about tort laws, similarly with criminal law, that in the world, culpability comes, you know, on a scale. Um, but in law, it tends to be cut off, uh, usually yes or no, and sometimes, you know, or, you know, murder in the three different degrees. And, you know, and, and, and so similarly with contract law, you know, is there enough consent, right? You know, generally, if you have enough consent, um, you know, it's enforceable uh, and it's, you know, and the, if you don't have enough consent, the defense of, of duress or undue influence or unconscionability may, may kick in. And, and so it's a binary, but in the real world, it's complex. Uh, and there's consent to varying degrees. And, and part of the discussion in my article, it, now that I know that you've been working with something for five years, I think I'll stop now and just, just defer. Um, my article is, even if the consent is enough to make, you know, to make it legally enforceable and to justify its legal enforcement, even on a moral level, justify its legal enforcement, it may be sufficiently low that the party's moral obligation to perform may not be present. Um, you know, and, and, and with consent as, as elsewhere, of course, there are also the, the aspect that, that, you know, much of contract laws, Nathan Ullman and, and, and Morris Cohn and many others have pointed out, is about commercial transactions. And for the purpose of commercial transactions, we need to have uh, predict, public predictability and reliability. So you, even if you privately have not consented, even if objectively speaking you have not consented, if, if, you, if your public actions are enough to lead other people to believe you have consented or at least sufficiently consented, that may be enough. So that's another wrinkle on it. So again, it, there may be situations where it's morally justified to enforce the contract but you can still say, you know, that the, the party chooses not to perform and can get away with it. Um, their action is also also morally acceptable. Right. So, so I, I think that's right, and I, I, I think we can have I to find a. Sorry, was that? Can I quote you on that? Yeah. <laughs> sure. you know, my three-year review coming up, and it's always good to know that you know get, get, get endorsements. I mean, I, I think it's plausible. My, my own view oh, is that. Oh, down to plausible. I was <laughs> I mean, if you're going to quote me, I'm going to leave it at plausible. But okay, but, plausible deniability of plausibility. For fair enough. <laughs> right. My my view is that we need to find a way where we can preserve a role for consent, but we don't demand so much of it that actually no contracts uh, in the real world satisfy the standard. I mean, so I think Barnett has an attractive argument, but I think the what I would dis- disagree with in his argument is that we can fully ground in consent the moral obligation, right? So, so um, I think there's sufficient consent there to take it into account uh, and to make sure that we make it part of the story of the conditions under which we might be justified in enforcing the contract and the promisor might be morally obligated to perform, which, as you say, are two different questions. Yeah, no, um, I, I entirely agree that, you know, look, there, there are, que- you know, as, as you say, there are questions about justifying a system, there are questions within a system, there are questions about moral evaluation in a system. I, I, I think the system we have for consent in contract law is generally fine for when, you know, 
law should, you know, when contracts should be in, legally enforced. But again, when I'm writing an article about the moral obligation to keep or perform a contract, I think it's a separate question. And there may, you know, so, you know, there may be lots of situations where um, I have no objection to the, to the contract being enforced if it's brought to court. But, uh, you know, I, I also don't think it's uh, I'm not going to morally criticize someone who doesn't perform on the particular circumstances. Great. Uh, I, I want to move on to a, a, a different topic, but I think it's related to the first question I asked you. So uh, you have written, I guess, general and universal theories of contract law. And I, I think I. I agree about the general and I disagree about the universal, as you know, but we're going to get to that. So let me start with what do you mean by a general theory of contract law and why you think that type of theory is problematic, or at least that we should be more careful when we write at this uh, kind of general level about contract law and contract doctrine? So general and universal are, are, are terms that are not easy to understand, but once we bring up the details in context, we should you know forget about the labels. Uh, it should be clear. Now, one thing I want to say by way of background, um, especially as regards universal, and we'll get to that in a moment. Um, uh, as I mentioned, I've taught in, in 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 Britain and the United States, and and when I when I taught in Britain, I had to. Um, remind the students that that judges are human beings and and can have biases uh, imperfections occasionally even corruption um, and when I teach in the United States I usually have to tell the students you know judges though they may have biases are you know even when they don't share your viewpoint are generally acting in good faith to the best of their abilities right it, it, partly it's about audience right and I you know and I think it's trying to get a correction right if it Uh, uh, so when I argue for, you know, the side I argue for on both of these topics is because I think there's a need for correction, not because I think one extreme is correct and the other extreme is wrong. So getting back to the question, um, when people have, when they teach contract law, it's something we've been talking about, and when they write contract theory, it's usually sort of just contract, right? Just this generic thing, contract. And its its scope is very wide. In one in one sense, it it's meant at least those who write contract theory is is meant to apply, you know, to to any in, in principle to any contract system, any current one, any past one, perhaps even any any hypothetical or future one. But when we teach the courses, we generally teach as 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 we've been talking about general contract principles, right? Uh, and and when we look at the courses, you know, when we look at the cases as well, here are the general contract principles applied to a, a sale of real estate. Here are the general contract principles applied to an employment contract. Here are the general contract principles applied to the sale of goods. Um, and the message is, you know, they're they're all about the same. And you know, and and one thing I I've, I've pointed out is, you know, someone who uh, is well versed in contract theory. And well versed in general contract principles, um, a they you know if you you take a really wonderful course like yours at USC, uh, uh, and then they drop you down in the middle of Germany or France, um, you probably won't be really good uh, at contract practice. Um, and if instead you drop you down in you know uh, any state of your choosing and say, okay, um, we've got to close on this real estate transaction tomorrow or this employment agreement this afternoon, um, they might not be the best people for you. Um, so part of the point 
um, is not that there aren't commonalities. And, you know, you, you wrote a, a wonderful article showing there are a lot, you know, and again, no, no one to my knowledge, and certainly not me, has ever denied it, but there's a lot of commonalities and partly it's about uh, the way that that uh, contract write, contract treatise writers have influenced people, partly the way that that many systems borrow from other systems. The U.S. borrows from Britain. Uh, many countries borrow from the German or French codes. Um, there's, you know, uh, efforts to make things more uniform through the CISG, the Unidroid Principles, uh, uh, Unidraw Principles, and, and other things, uh, uh, restatement of contracts in the U.S., etc., so, yeah, I mean, there's the glass half full and the glass half empty, and I'm the glass half empty sort of guy. And 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 at least as regards different transaction types, I'm following to some extent the writings of the American legal realists and also the the, the casebook of Stuart Macaulay and the, and the other Wisconsin school members that, that there's a point to focusing on different transaction types, not because there aren't commonalities, not because there aren't some general contract principles that apply, and you know Nathan Nathan Ullman, uh, you know emphasized that that we shouldn't overdo the focus on transaction types because that might uh, encourage a sort of you know isolation of areas and capture by by uh, uh, business interests and so on and so forth. But the fact is that there are distinctive elements to franchise agreements, real estate agreements, uh, employment agreements, uh, mergers and acquisitions, um, and and and. I, I don't think they be, should be entirely smoothed over, and that students, again, if they're if they're going to have some useful uh, uh, wisdom from our classes, that should be emphasized. Um, the The question of of a, a contract across jurisdictions, again, is glass half empty, glass half full. I, I don't. I think we tend to overstate similarities. Not that there aren't a lot. I mean, any certainly any you know even if we started completely from scratch and, and, and had 10 independent groups um, uh, uh, start off institutions for the enforcement of promises, bargains, transactions, there would be some obvious similarities. This, again, we all starting from corrective justice and the needs of commercial enterprises, right? That's not surprising. But there still are lots of differences. Um, you write about remedies. There are lots of differences on, on the, you know, the relative availability of specific performance, uh, uh, good faith. Uh, you know, good faith in the United States now is different than good faith in the United States 30 years ago. Good faith in the United States now is stronger than that in Britain, weaker than that of Germany. Um, uh, there, you know, uh, you know, requirements of you know, do we when, if at all, do we ever enforce a promise without an exchange? Um, major differences. Again. I, this is not to say, you know, there aren't a lot of similarities, a lot of overlap. Um, there are, for, and for all the reasons you indicate. Um, but I'm just sort of pushing back uh, because um, I, I think it goes too far right now the way it is. And again, back to the cultural studies point. What is it we're trying? Why is it that we emphasize general contract principles? Why is it we emphasize the... Uh, alleged uniformity of, of contract practice and theory across jurisdictions. And by the way, why do we, you know, look, you're very learned and, you know, you can see it in the articles you write about it. But most people who write their universal theories of contract law know one jurisdiction, maybe one and a half. 
and it, it just strikes strikes one as as amazing ambition to you know would your familiarity with one and a half jurisdictions or two jurisdictions say here let me tell you what contract law is like everywhere. Yeah, so so I actually wanted to say I think there this is definitely the point where we agree, and uh, I, I think this is something that that I find problematic about a lot of private law theory, not just contract theory, which is the mismatch between the materials that people are working with and the scope of the claims they make, right? So, uh, you know, let me start with uh, Charles Fried, right? Uh, you know, obviously a very influential scholar. His book, Contract as Promise, very important, very influential, but it's couched as a general theory about contract as such. And then you dig a little bit deeper into the justifications for some of the claims into the materials that are analyzed. And you see, you know, it's a lot about the American law of contracts and, and a, a very small segment of the American law of contracts. And I, I completely agree with the, 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 the fact that there's something problematic there. Um, well, it's, there it's more, of course, it's more complicated than that. I mean, again, I'm, I'm also a big fan of, of, of Freed and, and his writings in this area. But, you know, he's... He says, you know, contracts is essentially promise, but let me carefully note that there are lots of aspects of American contract practice which, which you know, uh, uh, reflects basically tort um, or tort or other or other or unjust enrichment or other moral foundations. So, you know, all of contract is promise except for the part that isn't is an interesting claim. Um, it's it's you know, as you as you point out, it's 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 approaching more sort of the the wine rib argument that you know. Tort is a certain sort of corrective justice, and people want to do something else to deal with accidents. That's fine. It's just not tort. Well, you know, contract is promise, but contract practice involves a lot of things which aren't. And you know, so then, what point is he making? Where, where, what is he telling us that that's of interest? Yeah, I, I mean, that that's why the, I think the point where I agree with you is that we either do theories of the law of contracts of the U.S., or as you would suggest, the law of business transactions in the U.S. or the law of consumer transactions in the U.S., or we do transnational theories. But but if you want to do transnational theories, there has to be a comparative element to it, which uh, you, you, you cannot actually ignore, right? So you cannot write a, theory, a general universal theory without taking into account both the overlaps and the differences between jurisdictions. And obviously that suggests to me that it's a very hard undertaking. I think, you know, people like James Gortley maybe come close to that. But at the same time, when you have, you know, when the scope of your project is to that extent, transnational, universal and uh, general and transcending historical limits, what you can say, and I think you, you see this in, in Gortley's work, is very general, right? Yeah. Uh, or, or it's going to be more more about explaining why we see differences across jurisdictions, what those differences tell uh, tell yeah, us. One, but, one of the points you make in your article is is you know there convergence um, where you know uh, different systems have the same rule, but there can also be convergence where different systems have the same rule, but different rules, but apply them in a more convergent way. But of course, it you know. And it works the other way as well, right? I mean, the problem is, and 
I always have a you know certain problem, a certain skepticism when I deal with people who who work in comparative law because look, our 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 lives here are finite, and and you know you can you could line up um, you know the German code, the Chinese code, the French code, and, and the UCC and the CISG, and 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 look at the look at the you know as, as at one point you sort of do um, you know here's something like Hadley foreseeability in all these contexts, but if you're you know as, as, as you know, you know, when you deal with law on the ground, law on the ground is often different than law in the books. I, years ago, I was a reporter for uh, the Uniform Law Commission on, on premarital and marital agreements. And I came up in discussion, you know, you know, uh, you know the level of, of friendliness towards enforcement of these agreements. And someone, someone on, from the floor was, was from Pennsylvania. And I said, well, you know, you guys have this case called Simeon where almost all agreements are enforceable. And she says, don't get me, don't get me started about what they do in, in, with Simeon. You know, and her implication was, yeah, there is a case out there that, that the high court decided that says enforce these agreements. But on the ground, the trial courts and the family courts may be doing something different. And it's, and it's hard to discuss you know, contract practice without knowing what the corporate you know, law department is doing in, you know, in their corporations and without knowing what the trial court judges are doing in the local district courts. And, and when you add in that extra detail, um, you know, to have knowledge of even more than one state, let alone a whole bunch of countries, is astonishing. And I think it's rare if it happens at all. Right. And if it happens, it's necessarily a very broad level of yeah. generality, right? Which would uh, undermine your ability to take into account both this distinction between law in the books and law in action that you mentioned, but also the differences across different transaction types, right? Yeah. So you are going to start erasing all these differences. So there is a sense in which the tendency towards universality is also the tendency towards generality, even yeah. within one jurisdiction. Yeah, that that's, that's interesting. So... Uh, I want to turn now to the last question, and this is a more autobiographical question that I wanted to ask you. You're um, asking about yourself? I, I mean, sorry, biographically, <laughs> not not autobiographically. I, I must admit, I don't know nearly as much about you as I should. <laughs> yeah, sorry, not autobiographical, biographical. Um, but it's about more intellectual biography. It's not about uh, your life, um, even yeah, though yeah. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's interesting. But but uh, you know, you are someone who has written both about general jurisprudence and about specific areas of law, such as contracts and family law. And I am also interested in both general jurisprudence and uh, particular jurisprudence or um, theories about areas of law, such as contracts. Are you trying to put me out of business entirely? Is what you're saying? Yeah. No. So what, I wanted to ask you: What is uh, how that? How do these two things inform your work? Uh, so how does your work in general jurisprudence and your thinking about general jurisprudence inform how you think about contracts and family law? And how does the the fact that you work in contract and family law inform, if it does, uh, your views about general jurisprudence? And, and, you know, of course, it's you you're you're within your uh rights to respond by saying there's actually no connection there but if you, if there's any connection i would be interested in knowing what that is well i i mean i try to in in family law and contract law and some other areas i i try to combine both both 
more theoretical work and and you know good old fashioned doctrinal work. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, when when I I talk about the issue of consent and contract law, um, it says I'm getting a lost connection to server attempting to connect. Okay, connected. Okay. Um, when I talk about, let's say, consent and contract law, it's informed by by you know work I've read in general moral philosophy. When I'm I'm writing a, a book, which may be finished in our lifetime, or maybe you'll finish it for me after I'm dead, about the treatment of agreements in family law, um, there's some obvious connections about look how you know to compare how um, contracts are are tre- treated generally in commercial transactions, how are they treated differently in family law. What are the justifications for enforcement in, in general trans you know which may may explain and or justify why family law will you know be more severe or less severe, more likely to enforce, less likely to enforce than, than their commercial counterparts. So yeah, I mean, you know, I I, I pick up cross benefits where I can, um, but it's not not something I on the whole consciously uh, try to find. It's you know, I, I remember you know, people saying, well, you're interested in Nietzsche and biology and and family law. How do you combine these three? Well, I don't. Uh, you know, they're just things separate things I'm interested in, um, and sometimes there's some convergence and. Oftentimes there isn't. Great. Um, yeah, I think I think that's that's probably what happens to me too. Um, that that there's no uh, that you obviously gain from reading in other areas, and that what you've read or learned in one area informs the way you think about the second area. But there's no obvious. Uh, connection. Would you say that the work you've done in your more uh, in more recent years about specific areas of law has changed some in in some respects your views about general jurisprudence, which is a topic you wrote about more at the beginning of your career, or do would you say it's pretty much the you still have the same views, or if you've changed them, it hasn't been because of your engagement with contract and family law. When you become an old person like me, you'll have the experience of looking back on things you wrote five, ten, and and twenty years before, and 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 there are there are two disconcerting responses. The first disconcerting response is, "Gosh, I was an idiot back then," and the second disconcerting response is, and I, and I, I was just reading some old old pieces of mine um, the last couple of days. Hey, this stuff is pretty good. <laughs> I wish I'd thought of that. Wait, I did think of that. I, you know, there's either either you you know. You had better ideas than, or you had worse ideas than. Um, I hope that that my ideas are at least more nuanced than they used to be. Now, um, you know, when people stake out positions at a at a younger age, you know, most of us are are, are fairly resistant um, to to changing it later. I'm, I'm, you know, I haven't I haven't had a a, a late term you know conversion to natural law theory from legal positivism. Um, uh, uh, but I hope that, that, you know, my work in contracts and contract theory and family law and family law theory have helped me get a more nuanced view, um, about law generally, uh, and certainly about my jurisprudential speculations about law. And, and certainly I, I use examples, um, um, from all those areas and, and, and other areas as well when, when I, when I do my jurisprudential work. 
Great. Uh, Brian, I want to thank you again for accepting the invitation for a really interesting conversation. And uh, I hope uh, we get to continue this uh, in person sometime soon. It, it's, it's been an honor. And, and I'll emphasize to you something I, I, I said off the record before, which is I think we need to get someone to interview you and, ta and take you through your paces. Um, and I'll, I'll volunteer if no one else will take the job. <laughs> thank you very much, Brian. Thanks.